Welcome, everyone, to another episode of DLN Extend. This is the show where we choose topics covered by Destination Linux Network that we think need further discussion and extend the conversation here. These shows include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek, Tux Digital, and Zebedee Boss Gaming. I'm Eric, a web technologist, Linux, and open source aficionado. And I'm Nate, a Linux, fitness, and vintage tech enthusiast with an almost unhealthy obsession with the OpenSUSE project. So Eric, what have you been up to? Well, this week I have spent a lot of time testing elementary OS for the Big Daddy Linux Live stream that's coming up uh, this weekend. And I have had my challenges with elementary in the past. And so I decided, hey, I'm actually going to give this a, a real shot this week and take some time and really just put it through its paces, try to do all the things I would normally do. I unfortunately had the habit of just dismissing it out of hand before because I had tried it. I'm not a huge fan of Pantheon, the desktop environment, and some of the other decisions that the elementary team made. And so I thought, you know, that it's just unfair because I had a recent change of heart with GNOME and have really enjoyed using it. And I just thought, look, Maybe it's been long enough. Maybe it's time for me to go back and take a good look. And I've spent many, many hours. And I have to say that while there are some things that I genuinely do like, and there are some good points to elementary, I think this is another situation like Endless OS where I'm just not the target audience for this distribution. And so the things that I expect out of what I would consider a sort of normal distribution, what I consider to be a more classic or standard distribution would be they have their base, they have their choice of kernel, their applications that they include by default, maybe they have one or more desktop environments and things like that. But ultimately, it is more or less just a standard Linux base and the desktop itself and the choices that they make are fairly similar across the distributions. You might have a different type of repository or package manager. You might have different desktop environments. You might have different choices in the default applications that they provide you. You know, a lot of distributions have custom tools, making it easier to administer your system and do some of the things that may have been more traditionally command line driven type tasks. But ultimately, the functionality is very very similar in terms of how you would use it. Elementary sort of follows that model, but they also make a lot of decisions that make it, in my opinion, very different from those sort of more standard distributions. And because my expectation in using Linux has become those types of distributions, I've found it challenging to make it work the way that I expect it to work. And so most of my time with it has been trying to figure out how to either undo or override some of the decisions that the elementary team has made. And that is more on the nuts and bolts kind of fundamental level of just using the system. Going beyond that, having some challenges with Pantheon itself and some of the decisions there and the way that the dock works and the way that there's no minimize. And there's there's sort of a lot of the standard kind of desktop operating system paradigms that just don't exist. And I guess you can look at it almost like GNOME, like just a sort of stock install of the GNOME desktop where they also don't have minimize. They also don't show it. Well, they don't even show a dock, whereas Pantheon has a dock. They don't have a system tray. Pantheon doesn't have a system tray. I guess my biggest complaint would be that if I'm using GNOME, and I'm actually using Fedora Workstation 31 right now, and I have 
put the dock back and I have a system tray and I've been able to change the things that, and it's a handful of things. It's not everything. It's a few things. I've been able to change those and make it work for me with a minimal amount of effort. Whereas with elementary, I just feel like I'm continuously running up against challenges and roadblocks and things that are making it difficult for me to use in the way that I've come to expect as a seasoned Linux user. I totally agree with everything that you said about my experience of elementary OS. Also, getting ready for the Biddle challenge. Some of the, uh, I don't want to say, but maybe paper cuts. It would be, be paper cuts for me or, or rough edges. Some things that look like, you know, sandpaper on the uh, on the cheeks kind of a feeling to it. The dock, for one, I'm, I'm not a fan of that Mac-style dock. I mean, it is very, it's obviously, elementary is trying to uh, emulate Mac quite a bit. I mean, even in how they show the uh, meta key or super key, they use the, the Mac or the Apple logo for that. That's and They could have something else there if they really wanted to. But they, they chose the what the Macintosh has or the Apple, since the Apple II has had. So some issues that I've had were if you have more than one of the same application running, you have two little glowing blue dots at the bottom. Have you noticed that? I have, yeah. Yeah. Well, how do you select the other application? Since you can't minimize it, how do you select the other application? Do you have any idea? I'm, 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 (laughs) (laughs) it's the type of thing where I've spent enough time to notice, but I haven't spent enough time to know how to do those things. So I'm sure there is a way that, you know, you can click and hold or... The only way that I figured out, and maybe I maybe I'm doing it wrong. I could be Linuxing wrong here. But the only way I could find it was either to to quit one of them to kill them if it's like a, a full screen application. But then I realized I can actually move the screen around, so I can I can actually move the window around and off off kilter. It was a full screen application. It was working on X lights. Since I committed to using it for for doing my regular tasks, and I've been playing with my Christmas lights, I used I installed the app image. It was single click by default, and I tried to change that. Although it gives you a, a bar that you can adjust the double click time, there's no way to actually activate the double click time or the double clicking, which I thought was really weird. So I have that option there. So I double click to activate the app image for X lights, and that of course, uh, well, it didn't work out because I opened up multiple X lights, and uh, and then I, I couldn't figure out how to get to the other one basically. So it was just some some frustration there. Uh, because the, the the dock at the bottom wouldn't wouldn't let me get there. The uh, the other thing too is Discord. If you close Discord, it's still open, but you can't get to it since it has no system tray. So the only way to get it is to open it up again through the application menu, which because you, you can't click on the notification when you get one to go back to Discord like you can in, in Plasma. You have to reopen up the application. It's just I mean like, I I don't understand with a if it's an oversight or if that's the design intent, I don't know. Either way, I just wasn't really tickled about that either. But those are just some regular things that were just kind of frustrating. You did share with me the uh, there's a, a PPA to install elementary tweaks. I have resisted doing that. Can you believe I resisted the entire week? You're a better man than me. Yeah. So I, I <laughs> so I still having no minimize icon, which I'm sorry, it's really slow and clunky to not have a minimize icon. I don't know what is the quicker way around that. Uh, if there is, again, maybe I'm Linuxing wrong here, but I couldn't find a quicker way to interact with elementary. I just want to just get a window out of my way so I can use something else because I, I I do you know, I like to float windows around. So I I don't know. It just seems like a really goofy design intent, but it's their baby. You know, it's their their product. They can you know, do with it as they please. And if it makes their users happy to not have minimize icon, then I guess, you know, go forth and do great things, right? If I can appreciate anything about it, it is that it is different. And I have been a big proponent of other distributions doing different things. 
in the face of people saying things like there's too many distributions, there's too much dilution of the talent, there are too many people working on too many different things, and if only we could pick one thing or two things or minimize the things and then have everybody work on those things, then we'd have a better experience. And there's some logic to that, but I still contend that distributions like Elementary, I think of Farron OS, I think of there are some distributions out there that do different things and do things in a way that other distributions don't, whether they're taking a desktop environment and they are customizing it or whether they're adding their own tools. You know, you can look at OpenSUSE as a, an example with the YAST control center and all of the things you can do in YAST that normally you would have to do in the terminal. And all of these different distributions bring something. I may not like it, but I do at least respect and acknowledge that the things they do are interesting, important, different, however you want to say it, but it has value. It has merit. So I'm going to circle this back around to just kind of saying, much like many of these other distributions I've tried that I've just said, look, I get it. I can see what you're doing. It's just not for me because it doesn't work the way I expect it to. And just chalk it up to that because it is popular. People really do like it. There are some people that are very passionate about elementary. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm very happy that that option is out there. I saw a lot of people who were saying they were first-time Linux users or they had tried Linux in the past and didn't really like it and that whenever they came to elementary, it just made sense to them. And that's, that's a success story. That's a very inspiring thing to hear. I respect the fact that they have said, this is what elementary OS is. This is what Pantheon is. This is how we handle software. This is how we do these things and um, they stick to it. So besides looking at elementary this week, Nate, what have you been up to? I have started looking at playing with self-hosting media servers. We've all heard of Plex and MB. Well, I learned of Jellyfin from Michael recently, and uh, it's, a, it's a fork of MB before they went closed source. And both MB and Jellyfin have the DLNA, the, uh, which is uh, kind of a local discovery media thing, which allows me to stream movies on a PlayStation 3 or whatever, uh, which does work. So I've started with MB, uh, even though Michael said not to. I started with MB as my, where I'm starting with the, uh, my exploration. And I must say, that is a pretty neat system. It's it's like having Netflix, except it's running off of my, my new server that I built. Um, and, and so it's kind of neat. It runs very nicely. Uh, I've, I've streamed to, I think, four different devices at once just to see, on the wireless too, just to see if it strained anything and didn't seem to stress anything of my of my network or the machine itself. So I was, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm going to try Jellyfin next and then finally Plex. The, the nice thing about MB is it has allowed me to clean up my the metadata on, on the the movies that I do have, and also there's some duplicates that were in there. I got rid of a lot of duplicates as well, so I cleared up a lot of lot of drive space as well with just some of the tools. Well, just because of the interface having you know, multiple Transformers movies, I'm like, well, I know I don't need multiple, so I went through and I checked to see where they were located and different files, whatever. Since I, I combined a bunch of discs, so um, but yeah, no, it's working great so far. I'm enjoying having having access to all that stuff in a, in a uh, all those movies and TV shows in a, in a nice clean interface. So I'm excited about how this is going to progress. Kind of why I built this machine to begin with. So I'm actually finally using it for what, you know, one of its intents. I was a Plex user for a very long time. It was not always easy to set up, especially in the beginning. There was a lot of challenge, especially matching the media metadata and getting sort of all the stuff populated properly. And then the, the processes that run and pick up new movies, you had to name the files a specific way. It was just, it took a lot of effort. And what I noticed with MB was it seemed to be much more forgiving in that case where things don't have to be named exactly perfectly. It does a much better job it seems of matching up the metadata 
from the various databases, online databases it's using. The challenge with these systems is it's not just me using it, right? So I can put up with a lot of cruft and goofiness with different applications. You know, if there's some goofy way I have to use it, like I'll understand that, but my wife is not going to do that. My daughter's not going to do that. And if it doesn't work well, then they're just not going to use it. And so Plex and MB and Jellyfin, all of these options are very good at not only the backend server side of stuff and, you know, cataloging things and organizing them, but also on the front end where it matters to people, you know, like my family who are not technical people who are not going to deal with any kind of weirdness. MB and Plex have Roku apps, they have mobile apps. Yeah, I need to try the mobile clients. I haven't even gone that far yet. And I, I'm not a big fan of mobile devices. So I guess I need to uh, I need to fo- do some put some focus there. The other thing that, I, that I've done is uh, I fixed a VCR. So I'm really excited about that. I know you're probably thinking, why in the world would I need to fix a VCR? But, you know, I have a lot of VHS tapes and I really don't care if the kids smash them. And they have, there's some kind of novelty in putting the VHS tapes in there and, and watching movies. So uh, that was the other, that was my other bit of excitement this week of what I've been doing. Not very Linuxy, but you know, kind of ties in with the media thing. <laughs> Each week, we like to look at the DLN community, specifically, usually the discourse forum, for what was popular, what type of topics were coming up. And this week, we actually have a little bit of a convergence between the most popular post and Linux for everyone where Jason asked the question, this is out on his show this week as well, what do you appreciate about Linux that you can't experience on Windows? And so a lot of people had great feedback in that thread. He also had some feedback from folks on other outlets and and sources of folks getting back to him. So the show itself has has other stuff. But the, the discourse thread was great. There were definitely some themes, you know, some reoccurring themes about updates and maintenance and customization was a big one, right? Because in Linux, most desktop environments are very customizable, not only the visual aspects of the system, but also the underpinnings and the ability to really get into the guts of things and change things in a way that is difficult on Windows, if not in some cases impossible in terms of doing the same sorts of things. So uh, I I responded with my ideas, but before I get into that, um, Nate, what was your take on this? So the number one thing that I appreciate about Linux and especially specifically the systems of mine is that I'm responsible for it. Good, bad, or whatever. I can shape my system to my needs. I can tailor each individual system for whatever purpose I have for it. And to me, that is what I can do in Linux that I cannot do in Windows or Mac or whatever. I can't shape the system to, to suit whatever I need. And I really appreciate, you know, that that specific function, that specific feature of, of Linux desktops is that I can, you know, make it my own and so forth. And you know, whether, whether that's a, a big deal for other people, maybe not. But that's my number one reason for why I, I like using Linux. I think once you use Linux long enough, you expect that. The idea that it's a personal computer and it's making it personal again. It is truly the definition of, to me, personal computing, meaning I have decisions that I can make. Other people have made those decisions for me. I I completely value when a distribution takes the time to theme things a certain way and make it look and feel nice and very clean and usable. And then I appreciate that they install a good set of applications for me that I'm most likely going to need or want or use. But from there, I can do whatever I want to do. 
Right. I, I kind of see distributions as they give a suggestion, at least how I feel OpenSUSE does it, is they give a suggestion, this is how we you know, kind of see you using it. But if that's not how you want to use it, that's you're not locked in in any way, shape, or form. It's it's just a suggestion. And, and maybe some distributions aren't that way, uh, one we may have been talking about a little bit earlier. But most distributions, I feel like, do fall along those lines of, of just kind of giving you an outline. I mean, talk about Mint. Uh, they give you a, a great suggestion if this is a with a nice onboarding process of this is how you use our distribution. And, you know, and I really appreciate that and, and not locking me in. Samsonite had made the comment about what surprised him was that he's been able to do anything he needed or wanted to do with little to no learning curve. And I, I believe that to be true to some extent, but I really do think that for the majority of people who just sit in front of a computer to do the thing they need to do, who don't even really care about how it looks, right? They've done surveys and most people don't even change the wallpaper. The level of customization for technical people, for people who care about their experience on a computer, or maybe you have had a problem where they couldn't get their standard system that they're used to working the way they expect. Yes, I believe those people will see the power and the advantage of being able to do things different from what's already given to you. For the other people, though, for the vast majority of people that use computers, I think it's just different enough. And that is part of if they're willing to take the time to learn. My personal belief is, and this is having used and been a system administrator for many years of Windows-based systems, is that Linux is so much easier to understand overall, like just the nuts and bolts of like, what's happening? How does this thing run? What is it that's doing that? Like, how can I figure out, like, I don't want it to do that that or I wanted to do this, how can I do that? In Linux, my experience has been if you put in a little bit of time to just understand those fundamental aspects of the system, you know, how does it boot? What are the disks doing? Like, where's my data? You know, drivers, really basic stuff. Then the return for that time spent is huge. Whereas the last time I tried Windows, it occurred to me that the thing that was most frustrating was getting software installed, like getting the drivers. I had to go to Dell and get 15 different driver packages and install them. And I had to, every piece of software I wanted to get, I had to go to an individual website somewhere and download the installer file and install the file. And and then once it's installed, if there's an update, if that piece of software doesn't have an updater feature built into it, I'm not going to get that. I need to go out and know that there's a new release and go download it yet another installer. And it's, it's so clunky in comparison to a package manager, which in Linux, it's such a simple, fundamental thing. And once you've experienced that and understand how easy and simple that is, you know, I install Linux every other day in some cases on my laptop. I don't have to install drivers. I mean, the the one exception to that is because it's an NVIDIA hybrid chip, I do have to have the NVIDIA driver. I don't have to because I can use Nouveau. I prefer the NVIDIA because it runs better, but I don't have to install all that, those 15 other drivers that I had to get from Dell to run Windows on this same system. And most of the software I need is already there. And if it's not, it's as simple as using a software center or I prefer the command line for package management and you just install what you want. And when there's an update to it, something really important like a security update, something like that, it's just part of your update process and it just happens. There are just so many things about the way you use a computer when you're using Linux that make it 
just so easy and so effortless in comparison to my experience with Windows, and that's historically and in recent memory. I explained this to Adam Grubbs one day because he was asking about, well, would you use Windows again? And I, I don't fundamentally have a problem with Windows, and I certainly don't begrudge anyone who uses it. It comes down to me having the experience and the knowledge of how well Linux runs for me and how easy it is for me to use in comparison to Windows that because I have that knowledge, because I have that experience, I, I find it very difficult to use Windows because of those of all those things I just mentioned. If I didn't have that information, if I hadn't taken the time to learn and do the things that I can do and know what I know about Linux, I maybe I'd be perfectly content on Windows because I wouldn't know any better. I would just think this is a computer. I went to Best Buy. I went you know somewhere. I bought this computer. This is what's on it. And this is sort of my framework for what I can do. And I go out and I download the things and I do the things and that's it. Like this is just what a computer is. But once you have that experience and that knowledge and you know that, oh, wait a minute, I can do all kinds of stuff on here that something like Windows would never let me do. I don't think I could ever go back. I have to totally agree with you as far as the system not telling you what's going on. This is some time ago, but I was installing, I think I believe it was called VRED. It's an Autodesk package for virtual reality. It was, it was for work doing some, some fancy stuff. And um, the software wouldn't launch. And I couldn't find out, I couldn't figure out why it wouldn't launch because there was no feedback. I couldn't launch it in terminal, as it were. And it was it was such a pain in the fanny just trying to understand what the failure was of this this application. So it was a lot of uh, you know browsing the web, a lot of a lot of web searches to try and figure out what is going on here. And it was essentially a registry issue, which you know editing the registry that's another fun that's another fun task in and of itself that I don't wish upon anybody. But yeah, there's there's lots of things that you a lot of you Users don't see it, but Windows is really not very easy to use when it comes to solving problems within the system. You know, if something is not quite right, you you've got a lot of work ahead of you just to figure out what the problem is. And and Linux is a lot more upfront about what the failure is. There's all kinds of tools for either debugging or errors and error log reports and so forth. But I, that's what I, one of the things I really appreciate about Linux as well. I didn't write that down on the forum, but maybe I should have. I still could, I suppose. <laughs> So this week on Destination Linux, they had Hillary from FreeGeek on to talk about the charity. And if you remember last week, we had talked about FreeGeek. It's going to be the first charity we're, we're sponsoring here on uh, in the Destination Linux network. And it was a really interesting interview about how they're using technology, not just you know to, to, to give out or to sell, but how they're using it really to empower other people. The story that I like the most, and you have to help me out with uh, some of the details here, but the, essentially they gave a computer to, to a girl... One of the things they do is they work with other organizations that are outreach organizations. One of the ones they mentioned was, you know, folks who had been dealt with homelessness and just the digital divide themselves, what it is, you know, really the impact it has on people and the idea that people will say, well, smartphones are ubiquitous and pretty much everybody has one. And Hillary's comeback to that was, well, try typing a resume on a smartphone or try you know, doing any real sort of work on a smartphone, because that's still one of the challenges. So she had mentioned this story about an outreach program where a, I think she was about 10 years old or something like that, a girl. Yeah, it was, she was, she was very young. 
Yeah, and so she, the the story was basically that the girl felt bad because she didn't have a computer at home, and all of the other kids did their homework on their computers at home, and she was actually sort of singled out because they had to give her her homework in a different format, and she had to you know use like a, a, a folder or a binder, and it, you know I mean when you're at that age, that's a difficult time, and anything that makes you different, you know, all of a sudden you're weird, and so she felt self conscious about that. And so Free Geek was able to give her a laptop that she could use to do her homework. And not only that, but they mentioned the fact that that was the only computer in the house. And so her family benefited from it. And the fact that, again, bridging that digital divide, not just for a little girl that you know was having, having a, a more difficult time with her homework than she would have otherwise. And for folks that you know were trying to find jobs, trying to find housing, trying to live a modern life without a computer and without the internet, it's very difficult. And so one of the takeaways that I, for me, from this interview was, I, I guess I just didn't quite understand the depth of Free Geek and you know how many different programs they have and how many different initiatives and ways that they are actually working with people. And it's not just taking the hardware and either reusing it or recycling it, which is a big part of their mission to get as much e-waste, you know, eliminate as much e-waste as possible. But also these programs of redistributing those computers, giving them to the people that need them, and not only the computers, but also internet access. And they have programs where they teach people to use computers because, you know, try getting a job basically anywhere without computer literacy. It's pretty much impossible. I mean, there's just a, there's a expectation that you know how to use a computer just in the basic sense of, of how to use it and things like you know, an office program or browsing the internet or things that all of us look at as being just very trivial aspects of, of our day-to-day -day lives. These are people that don't have access to that and living a life, trying to live a life like that is, I, I mean, they say literacy, right? Computer literacy. It's almost as if you were like illiterate, right? Like you didn't know how to read and write. It's, it's almost gotten to the point and that may be a slight overreach, but it's it really is true. I mean, so much of what we do revolves around needing access to a computer somewhere and being able to get to the services we need and and do the things we need to do to live life. And so, yeah, I, I was very impressed with this. It, Free Geek seems to be like a pretty impressive organization that's doing a lot of work in a lot of different areas. And I'm really, really happy that this is who Destination Linux Network was able to work with. I was going to say, I, I like some of their programs that they have. Did you look at any of their programs? I did. And actually, she mentioned one of the things that people could do to help would be teaching, which I thought was cool. Yes. So they're like volunteers that they have. So they, uh, so if you, let's say you need a computer and you just can't afford to buy one, you can help them out for, for 24 hours or more at, at Free Geek, and they will give you a free computer with Linux Mint on it, which I think is a great choice. And then also for K through 12 students, a student volunteers at 24 hours and time that year can apply also for uh, to receive a free computer with Linux Mint as well. But I think that's really neat to do too, because you're not, they're not just, just giving a computer away. You can also buy one at their store too, but they're, uh, they're not just you know, giving the computer away. They're, they're actually giving kind of uh, forcing that social responsibility that kind of goes along with Linux anyway. And I, I just really like that approach. I think it's a well done approach to how they can bridge that digital divide 
you know, not just through entitlement, but through volunteering, through through philanthropy. And I really like that. And something like that, there should be more of that. And, you know, the fact that they're also reducing the e-waste, you know, throwing computers in the dumpster, you know, it's not, just not good. You know, there's there's a lot of resources in, in, a, in a computer that can be reutilized, even if, it, if the, the hardware is too old, the raw materials and so forth. So... I think this is a great, it's a great program and it's a great start to the Destination Linux Network trying to do some technologically good things out there. So I really appreciate that. For more information on how you could give to this program or at least find out more about it, go to destinationlinux.network slash freegeek. And that page will show you some different ways that you can donate if that's what you'd like to do. Find out more information and also links to Destination Linux 151, where they have this interview with Hillary and explain how DLN is working with FreeGeek. Also this week on Destination Linux was the software spotlight Pulse FX. Now Pulse Effects, that's something that you and I both use. I use it because my house is has a, a noisy floor, as in upstairs is kind of noisy at times with my kids. And uh and also there's just, you know, the ambient noise in here that you would it would just kind of have a rumble effect. Not quite as cool as the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. So it's better just to kind of cut that out with some some different things, like in, in my case a gate and a limiter to to make it the audio sound better, which makes it a lot easier for editing. I know you use it, you probably don't have the same kind of noise issues that I do, but it's just it's a really neat piece of software. Sure it does add a little bit of latency i've noticed in the um when recording but that's not a big deal for what, what we're doing uh has a lot more features and functions on it than i even know what to do with how deep have you gotten into pulse effects yourself i struggled for quite a while to get decent audio i'm still not convinced that i've got great audio but i've got much better audio than i had previously I struggled with trying jack, I've bought hardware, I've bought different microphones, and ultimately what Pulse Effects is giving you are the effects themselves, and these are the things that really make a huge difference. So yes, having a noisy background, that's that's a problem that Pulse Effects can help you fix with a gate. So you can have a noise gate that's opening when it, your voice is projecting into the microphone and closing and blocking out background sounds. And those could be as quiet as clicking a mouse or you're typing on your keyboard. And they could be as loud as some hum in the background or something that is going to make it through the recording otherwise. And so those effects that you can apply through pulse effects make a huge difference regardless of the equipment you have because you can tune it in ways that suit your specific system, your hardware. For me, the gate, it's not because I necessarily have a noisy environment, but it stops things like the sniffing and breathing noises that you might make while you're recording. It blocks out, like I mentioned, the clicks and different background noises that sort of distract from your voice. And it also has an equalizer built in. It has a compressor built in. It has all sorts of filters and effects built in that let you tune your input and output audio in a way that really I have yet to find anything that comes close to it. Now it's using third-party plugins to achieve these effects. So it's essentially collecting them all and putting it into a very nice UI so that you can just interact with it, turn things on and off, set different parameters, and, and basically tune it to whatever makes sense for your system. So you are able to run those different third-party plugins and filters and things independently or using different methods. But this just combines it all in a way where it's cohesive and relatively easy to manage 
And it just has solved so many of the problems that I faced for many months and spent hundreds of hours, again, on alternate solutions like Jack and just different things. And ultimately, Jack is using the same set of plugins in most cases anyway. So it's it's really, it's just a much simpler approach. And like I said, it doesn't matter what hardware you're using. Yes, if you have a bad microphone, it's not going to magically make your audio sound better. So a, a decent microphone is kind of a prerequisite requisite to having reasonably good audio. But this gets you all of those little extra pieces that you can't quite get through just pulse, or you'd have to piecemeal with a lot of different filters, and has made it so that I can get what I consider to be reasonably good audio to do podcasts and videos and stuff like that. Heck, even just chatting on Discord. You know that whenever someone has a bad microphone or they've got a ton of background noise or you can hear them breathing, like just all of those little things, you can just clean up and you know change your settings to what they need to be. And uh, it's really great. It's not perfect. There are definitely, I mean, Pulse Audio itself is not, it's certainly not a perfect system. And there will be times that it doesn't work exactly the way you expect it to. And you might have to reset Pulse Audio. And it's just all, it doesn't fix all of the weirdness that can be Pulse Audio but it at least lets you tame it in a way that you can make it usable and get good results with a fairly minimal amount of effort. Most distributions have pulse effects in the repos, but because you need all of those different plugins for the different settings and filters to work, it can be a little challenging to get it all sort of bolted together. It's a little messy and it doesn't really work that great compared to I use the Flatpak version, which bundles everything together. All the plugins, everything is there, and you just install the Flatpak and it just works. So my recommendation is rather than trying to use your distribution's version of PulseFX, give Flatpak a try. I think that's just a better experience for folks overall. Alternatively, you can do sudo zipper install pulse effects and it installs everything for you and you don't have to mess around with it. So that's, I've yet had to fiddle around. Just want to put it out there, you know, almost obsessive. That's excellent. <laughs> the ones that I've tried, it, it wasn't a great experience, but that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that OpenSUSE has a better deployment or, you know, wrapper or it's pulling in the, the right dependencies to make it all work because it's a little disappointing when you install it on Ubuntu and you go in and half of the filters don't even work because the right plugins aren't there and you have to go figure out, oh, okay, which one does that use? And it, it's like I said, it's just messier and more difficult than it needs to be. So it was real clean. When you told me to install PulseFX, I just did it and it pulled all the filters in. If anything has broken, I haven't noticed it. And I think you would have told me by now if something was broken. So it does seem to work quite nicely. So this week on This Week in Linux, the Ubuntu 2004 LTS pre-release survey has been released. And uh, I understand, you know, since you're a big Ubuntu user, have you, uh, have you done that? I have, and I've done it in the past as well. One of the things I really appreciate is that Ubuntu thinks ahead enough to say, why don't we pull our users and do this in a structured, repeatable way so that we're getting good 
clean results. And how much of this is used to influence the actual plans, who knows? I, I can't say for certain. But I do know that developers are always looking for feedback, and it's not always easy for them to get feedback. So the only thing I really wanted to mention is that the survey's there, and that you should, if you have any vested interest in how 2004 as a long-term support release that we'll be living with for many, many years, what gets included in there, what's important to you, this is the way for you to voice that opinion. And if you would like more information on what it's about, then I would definitely check out This Week in Linux because Michael does a very good job of explaining the background, the history, and some of the sort of tricks on how to do the survey the right way because they've got some of those decision point questions where if you pick the wrong thing, it kind of steers you off a path that you might not expect. So that's it. Also on This Week in Linux, KDE improvements for Plasma 5.18 was brought up. Things like easy emoji input and more. There is a uh, a GTK CSD support for uh, for GNOME apps in in Plasma, so they look more like uh, first-class citizens. Things to kind of get rid of the additional frames or the or the mismatch of frames so it, it looks more natural i don't know if you if you've used uh gtk3 apps in in plasma you'll notice that the the frames don't look quite right so now they're they're the client side decorations can be fixed as it were to make it look more like a native plasma app but not losing any of the the original functionality that existed in the gtk3 app with the, you know the different buttons or so on on the title bars so i think it looks really neat i think it's it's a real slick how they've integrated that and i'm pretty excited for that a lot of other features too. Um, and was there anything that stuck out to you as far as what's new in in, uh, in Plasma? Five point eighteen is going to be a long term support release. So this is what will be in let's say Kubuntu twenty o four. It's going to be what folks are living with in an LTS framework for a number of years to come. What I refer to, because 5.18 hasn't been finalized, what I refer to at this point are the This Week in KDE posts from Nate Graham. And I'll link to that in the show notes in case you don't know where it is, but it's uh, pointieststick.com. And it's basically his blog where he goes through and each week he posts the new features and also improvements and bug fixes. There are literally dozens and dozens of things that they are adding to this release. And I can't can't do it justice here by going through all of them, but if you have an interest in Plasma and would like to see what's going to be in 5.18, check out this blog. It runs the gamut of fixing little annoying things, you know, bugs, making little UI improvements. You know, Nate mentioned the, the larger features that they call attention to, but if you look down through these posts, it just, like I said, there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of little things that make Plasma that much better. And it's one of the reasons that I have sort of an undying love for Plasma is the rate of development is so fast paced and so many things and so many contributors are giving back to Plasma that each new release has not only a bunch of features and things that you see when you use it, but just a lot of tweaks and bug fixes. And it's just amazing to see how they've sort of got this pace of development and this cadence 
And then to have someone like Nate come out here and explain it all as it's happening. And he does a great job of linking back to the, the bug reports or the issues or the fabricator stuff so that you can actually see the discussions that happen and even participate if you want to give your feedback on these things. So this type of transparency and the development and the pace and the commitment that these folks have, it's it's really admirable and, and something that I value in using the KDE Plasma desktop. One of the other improvements that uh, that I, I just scanned through was the, the user interface improvements for Discover specifically. That Discover has now a real toolbar that doesn't just scroll away. I was going to bring this up later, but I think it dovetails real nice. So I've not been a big fan of of like software centers as a whole. Like I just haven't really cared for one reason or another. Just they really haven't. They've been nice. They're nice to look at and I see the value. I don't I, I don't want to take anything away from the actual value that software centers provide. I just prefer the terminal. But I've noticed uh, the improvements in Discover as of late and the fact that they're still putting effort and resources in Discover now, like a lot. Um, I think Discover is really rapidly shaping up as a pretty awesome software center, especially the way it handles you know the sources and so forth. So if I want to pull sources right now from either Tumbleweed repositories or from Flatpak, that's just a little drop down, really easy to get to at the very top of the application. So there's no question as to where it's coming from. I don't know. I, I'm going to go out there and say, you know, whether we get some hate mail for this or not, uh, I, I think I think Discover might be shaping up as my favorite software center right now, especially with the dark theme. It looks real nice with the dark theme. The ease of use, it's a lot quicker now. It's, it's not doing the weird things it used to do. It doesn't just hang there and spin. I know they're doing some really good work there on the KDE team for Discover. I still think the name is a little bit silly, but you know, the clash of terms and whatnot. But it's it's really pretty great, and I'm I'm excited to see what else happens here in 5.18 to Discover. I mean, I I might actually start using it on the regular because it is that good. It's been a bit of a rocky road getting here. I think this is a situation where they put out Discover before it was really ready. It's a tricky situation in software development. You have to get that minimal viable product out there, right? MVP release of something because you have to get it out for folks to use it. But to start with, when they released it, it was slow. It was buggy. You know, if you could get updates to install properly, uh, searching was clunky. The way, just all of it was not there yet, right? I mean, it just they had to iterate over it, and it's taken a while to get here. But I completely agree. The last time I used Discover, I was actually really impressed with the way that it worked, the way that I could find software and the categorization. One of my biggest gripes about every other software center is that they don't have filtering tools, right? So if I search for something, and particularly if I've got multiple repositories set up and I can potentially get multiple results for the same search, or they're showing me related items, that kind of thing, I should be able to pick, like you said, which repository am I pulling this from? Even basic things like, can I sort this, you know, by some meaningful sort criteria, other than it just, most of them just spit a list out and you have to scroll down through. And depending on how they sort things, the thing you're looking for might be the first thing. There might be five of them. I mean, it could be very difficult to find the right thing. It could be three scrolls down the page. It's really very difficult to use 
particularly for someone like me who prefers to do it from the command line with a package management tool where I can be explicit. I can put flags in. I can put those criteria that I want. I only want it to search the name. I only want it to, you know, show me from a certain repository. There's so many different ways to do that efficiently from the command line that my experience in software centers has been really frustrating because there is none of that. And now Discover has gotten to a point where it is stable. It is fast. It works and doesn't crash. I haven't had issues with it in any recent memory. And they're now starting to introduce those things that make it more usable, maybe just for someone like me, but I would have to think for anyone who's using it, who would look at this list of results and go, okay, well, uh, let me just sort by this or filter by that, or, you know, find the thing, narrow this result down to a meaningful result for me. Kudos to the team that have worked on Discover. I know they've taken a lot of, a lot of flack for the earlier releases and some of the problems that existed. But honestly, at this point, I agree with you. It's it's very usable and probably one of the best software center experiences that, that I've had in recent memory. We'd like to continue the discussion with you on Telegram, in Discourse, Mumble, or Discord. Visit the Destination Linux website for information on how to connect to the social channels and also on shows and creators at destinationlinux.network. For more info on where you can find me, uh, you can go to cubiclenate.com. Links to my regular written blatherings podcast and my YouTube channel, which I haven't done anything with in a while. And for me, I'm on the DLN Discourse most of the time and destinationlinux.network under the creators section. All of my social contact information is there. As always, we thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode of DLN Extend. Until then, have a great week, everyone. See you.